Well, good to be with you this morning. And I'm thankful for the opportunity, the invitation to uh, preach God's word and lead us in that way. I want to say, as I did in the first hour, thank you to this church for your partnership in ministry as, uh, as I serve with TLI. Thank you for um, your prayers and support and love. And uh, we're grateful to God for, for the connection and the partnership we have. Our uh, text, as was just read, is from the book of Colossians. So if you're not there in your Bible, please turn to Colossians chapter 1. If uh, you had the opportunity to share the message of the gospel with another person, and let's say for whatever reason you could only turn to one verse or one brief passage, what passage might you turn to? Or to change it a little bit, uh, what text of scripture would you turn to if you needed to remind yourself of the gospel and the implications of it in your own life, which is something that we need to do regularly? And we might turn to John 3.16, we could turn to Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We might turn to Ephesians 2, what we once were, what we are now, Titus 2. There's a lot of verses, passages we could turn to. But this morning we're going to look at Colossians 1, 21 through 23, and it's a passage that we owe it to ourselves to be familiar with. It's only three verses, but it is rich with gospel truth. It gets to the heart of what God has done for us and the hope that we now have as we live out our days on this earth and as we await our heavenly inheritance. Now the passage was just read for us, so I won't, I won't go ahead and read it again. But I do want you to notice that Paul's emphasis in this section is on our reconciliation to God through Christ. Our reconciliation and the implications of that in our, in our lives. For the Colossians, that was important. For us, it is as well as we seek to be um, lights and testimonies for Jesus in our world. We see the, world, the word reconciled there in verse 22 Paul speaks of it actually one verse earlier in verse 21, uh, I'm sorry, verse 20, when he refers to everything being reconciled under King Jesus one day, and it will be, all the world, all the universe, either will bow the knee as friends in a relationship with him through salvation, or they will bow the knee as conquered foes, but still under submission nonetheless. Everything will be brought under reconciliation. Reconciliation to Christ, peace through the blood of his cross, as Paul says in verse 20. Here in our passage this morning, Paul wants to take that idea and just zero in on what it means for us as believers who have experienced that reconciliation. If you are reconciled to someone, this is not an unfamiliar word for us. Some Bible words require more uh, explanation, but we understand the word reconciled even in our daily life. Maybe we don't use it that much, but we know what it means. If you're reconciled to someone, it means that peace has been restored in the relationship. Or we, we might say another, in, a, in another way that things are as they should be in your relationship with someone. Now, for the believers, reconciliation points to a glorious and wonderful reality uh, that we as sinners, separated from God, can actually be brought back to God into a right relationship. We can be restored with our Creator God and know Him as Father. It's like the 
prodigal son in Luke 15, isn't it? He walked away from God. He went his own way, but later he, he comes to his senses. He has a change of mind, a change of heart, and he humbly returns to his father, hoping that at least he can come back and be accepted as a, a hired servant. Well, he is received back. He is welcomed, of course, but not just as a hired servant at all. He's welcomed back and received as a son, forgiven by the Father, welcomed, embraced, and restored into a relationship with him. Now, the passage doesn't use the word, but we could say that that's a picture of reconciliation, relational reconciliation, relationship as it should be. We, too, as wayward prodigals, have been graciously welcomed back and embraced by God our Father, forgiven and restored through the work of Christ. In a word, we have been reconciled. And we, and we, we know that. We've experienced it. It's a precious truth for us. Reconciliation is foundational to our relationship with God. And as we're going to see in our passage here, it's, relation, it's, it's foundational to how we just live day by day. The two go hand in hand. In these verses, Paul helps us look at reconciliation from three angles or perspective, perspectives. Uh, in verse 21, he explains what we once were. So he's looking in the past. In verse 22, he explains what we are now. And lastly, in verse 23, he explains how we should go on, how we should continue on in this life. So in a sense, it's the future, day by day. So we've got the past, verse 21. We have the present, so to speak, verse 22. We have the future in verse 23. And that's just kind of how we'll follow along. I don't have the outline there in a PowerPoint, but that's basically the structure of the message. You put all this together, and Paul describes here our greatest spiritual problem our greatest spiritual need. He also then talks about the great reconciliation that is now ours in Christ. And thirdly then, what that means for us. He does so with actually a pretty brief economy of words. Just three verses. So let's jump in. Verse 21. Paul starts by telling us what we once were. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. Now we notice right there he begins with his time marker, once, once you were, that's looking back, once you were alienated. What's he doing here? Well, he's, he's causing us to look backward and to remember our lives before we knew Christ, before we were saved. What we once were. This reminds me of Paul when he says, such were some of you, right? In Corinthians, such were some of you. He's causing us to look backward. Now, to be honest, it's not a very pretty picture, at least by God's standards. Verse 21 says that we were alienated from God. We were in a state or a condition of being separated or being at odds with God. Now, I don't know um, all of your stories. I don't know how old you were when the Lord saved you, what your life was like before you knew Jesus. Um, some people live pretty clean, moral lives on the outside. You know, they, they're keeping the rules. They're coloring inside the lines. Other people are the terror of the town. And you know where you fall on that spectrum, right? But regardless of where you were, there is one thing that everyone shares in common. In your 
condition and status prior to coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation, you were alienated and separated from God. It may have looked a little cleaner on the outside than some other person, but you were alienated from God, separated from his saving grace in Christ. You were separated from the life of God. That's the human condition apart from Christ. That's the condition for all. It's the most fundamental problem that we face, society faces, that our culture faces. Paul summarizes our human condition well in Ephesians 4.18 where he describes He describes it as being excluded or separated from the life of God. Excluded, separated from the very source of life. Elsewhere in Ephesians, he says, uh, he speaks of those who have no hope and are without God. That's what's conveyed here in Colossians 2. Um, Maybe you remember well what that condition felt like. We would all do well to remember that reality as we think about our lives today, what we once were excluded from the life of God. It's important for Paul to remind us of this. Even though it might not sound very popular to think this way, Paul wants us to know what we once were and to think about it in the right way. Now, there are wrong ways to think about what we once were. Paul wants us to think about it in the right way. He gives two statements or descriptions of this alienation. He says that as alienated people, we were hostile in minds and by evil actions. Now, these descriptions are important for many reasons. But one reason they're important is because we learn that unbelievers are actually active, willing participants in their rebellion, in their alienation. So you can think of it this way. It's not as though God alienates people who are, well, otherwise just good-hearted, God-seeking people who really would have things the right way with God if God weren't so grumpy and kept them at arm's length. No, it's not like that at all. There's no such thing as an innocent spiritual bystander. No such thing as a neutral player. According to Paul here, there's an active, willful opposition to God. It's a mark of our alienation. It's deeply rooted in our human hearts, and it spills out into our behavior. So it's at the core of our being, and it fleshes itself out in how we live. Paul talks about being hostile in mind. It speaks of, I think, a, a, not just like random bad thoughts that come through our thinking, but like a disposition, a mindset. For the unbeliever, their mindset is against God, against his purposes, against his rule, against his reign. You say, well, my, my neighbor's actually pretty nice, or I, I think I was actually pretty good before. Well, not according to submitting to God. Your mind, your mindset, your disposition was against, at odds with him. More, there are blatant examples of that and maybe not so blatant. Let me give you a blatant example of using your mind in rebellion against God. Richard Dawkins. I don't hear him much in the news lately, but you remember the name Richard Dawkins, right? British uh, evolutional biologist. Made a lot of money being kind of bombastic in his speaking against the God of the Bible. Richard Dawkins says, yeah, brilliant man in his own right, says this. It's a horrible idea that God, this paragon of wisdom and knowledge and power, a better way to forgive our 
forgive us our sins than to come down to earth in his alter ego as his son and have himself hideously tortured and executed so that he could forgive himself. Wow. Or presumably, Dawkins says, presumably what happened to Jesus was what happens to all of us when we die. We decompose. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk, says Dawkins. Now there is a mind that's gifted and sharp and educated and is screaming rebellion against God, hostile in mind. We could duplicate many of those examples, but what about the person who's not so overly antagonistic? Or someone who is actually pretty friendly and in principle has no problem with there being a God and has no problem if you want to come on Sunday and worship this God in your church. What about that person? Well, what does Scripture say? That person too, when you get right down to it, lives life according to their terms, out from under submission to God. They don't submit to God or His Word. They live life their own way. And maybe they do fairly well at it by human standards, but that's that. They live to themselves. There's a helpful verse in Romans 8. Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And that is sweeping. That covers everybody. And that covers, includes us, what we once were. Now, not only does Paul like, highlight our thinking and our mind, but he also then goes on to our lifestyle, our actions. He speaks there of our evil actions or our evil deeds. And I don't think this is surprising to us that how we think the disposition of our heart and our mind gets fleshed out in our behavior. I, I think we understand that. Later in chapter 3 of this book, Paul will speak of the need to put to death what belongs to our earthly nature. And then he goes on to describe kind of the old deeds of the flesh. He speaks of sexual immorality. This is in chapter 3. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. I read earlier that passage from Ephesians 4 where Paul speaks of being excluded from the life of God, but he talks about our darkened understanding. And then he goes on to describe the lifestyle, and he says, they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity. Then he says this, with a desire for more and more, Ephesians 4.19. We may have thought we were free, but we were slaves to that, weren't we? Romans 6, we were actually slaves in our sin and in our alienation to God. Prisoners. Now, that's a sad reality, and it's not good news, but that's the condition of sinners, unbelievers, apart from the grace of God. And it would seem that Paul has no problem kind of forcing us or allowing us, leading us to think back that way. He doesn't have a problem reminding us what we once were, even though he's invading our safe space, right? (laughs) Not allowed to do that. Well, Paul has no problem doing that, and it's for our good. We need to remember what we once were because it causes us to realize what God's done for us. We desperately needed God to act on our behalf, and he did. He did. 
through Christ. Now, it's been bad news, gloom, verse 21, but the tone changes in verse 22. We go from the minor key to the major key. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. But now. The, uh, the point is, if you know Jesus as your Savior, Paul says, yes, you once were this, but now. But now you're no longer that. And Paul says, you've been reconciled to God, restored. Now we enjoy friendship where there once was alienation. We have harmony where there was once hostility. We have peace where there was once war. This is reconciliation. This is the beauty of what Christ has done for us. If you belong to Jesus, you now stand in that sphere of reconciliation, of God's love and His grace, and there is friendship. Now, the great question, if, you're, if you want to ask a question, would be this. How did that happen? How could it be? How could it be that guilty, alienated, rebellious, hostile sinners be brought back into friendship with God? How could there be this change of status? Well, we know the answer to that, but let's not let the wonder of it escape us. Paul says it's because he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. Paul specifically tells us how it was accomplished, and he points to the cross. Reconciliation didn't just happen because God swept our sin under the carpet. It didn't just happen because he realized, well, they're actually not that bad. I can, I can deal with that. They're not too bad. It wasn't because God had a soft spot in his heart and just decided to overlook our sin. No, our reconciliation happened only through and only by the blood of Christ, by his physical body through death, as Paul says it. He's pointing us to the cross. Peace with God comes no other way. If Christ doesn't pay the price of our sins, then we cannot be forgiven. We can never be brought to God, period. And we know that. 1 Peter 3.18, it's a great verse. If you don't, if you don't know, you're not familiar with it. Listen, 1 Peter 3.18 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Isn't that great? I love that statement. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Again, the word reconciliation is not there, but the idea is there. The truth is there. Our alienation from God resolved only through the blood of the Lamb. And, and let's be honest, that is why we preach Christ, isn't it? That's why we preach Christ. At the heart of every God-honoring, good, healthy, solid church is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Christ crucified and risen for sinners. Paul says it later in chapter 1 is this way, just very simply, verse 28. What does he say? We proclaim Him. We proclaim Christ. There's salvation in no no one else, no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Amen to that. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, nothing new in, in that sense, then praise God for that. It means you've been in a good church, good churches, you've been well taught, and you know this. It's not new information, but Paul doesn't have a problem telling us new, uh, old information. Peter doesn't have a problem reminding us of what's good and right and true. We need to be stirred. We need to be reminded. 
I can tell you this, um, as I've had opportunity to travel around various parts of the world and be in different churches and be in different cultures, I can say this, you would be shocked at how little Christ is preached in pulpits. You would be shocked. Sometimes the preacher may actually talk about Jesus and talk about Bible stories and it seems all right on the surface, but when you get down to it week after week after week, they really haven't preached Christ. They haven't preached the need to be reconciled to God through Jesus, through His cross, through His resurrection, trusting in Him. They, they'll just talk about Jesus. They'll talk about Bible stories, but they don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or in some churches, many churches, Jesus is just the means to an end, namely your own personal gain, prosperity, self-exaltation. And in many churches, you don't even hear the name of Jesus. I don't know what they're talking about. They're talking about every other thing. But they're not talking about Jesus. The message is about other stuff. It, it would be shocking if we knew how much and how frequent this is around the world. And even here in America, let's be honest. May God help us as individuals, certainly as a church, a corporate body, to preach Christ to preach Christ, the only one who can reconcile us to God. If you trace that idea just through Paul's writings, you'll see that. You'll see it, right? You think about Corinthians, when, uh, chapter 2, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. Well, he could have. He wasn't going to mimic their teachers. And he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he preached Christ. He preached Christ. Now, we move on in verse 22, and I want to pose this question to us. What is God's purpose in reconciling us? Why did he do this for us? Now, maybe you've never asked the question quite like that. But we'll frame it that way. What is God's purpose in, that, in this reconciliation? And that's what he goes on to express at the end of verse 22. I'll start at the beginning. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to or in order to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Wonderful. What a hope. We're marching towards that day. Paul has in mind here our, the, the future judgment and accountability when we stand before the Lord. And I will say this, that every human being has a future appointment with God that he or she will not miss. You will not be 10 minutes late to that appointment. You will not be able to postpone it. You will appear at your scheduled time to stand before God as he opens the books. As it pertains to this, I think perhaps... R.C. Sproul said it best when he said, God is holy and we are not, and that's a problem. Indeed, that's a big problem. Our sin and our lack of righteousness is a problem we can't solve on our own, and so as we stand before God, we will never be able to pass the bar of that judgment without holiness, without righteousness, perfectly so. And that's a problem because we don't have it. We need it. God is holy and we are not. But in Christ, our sins are paid for. Our debts are forgiven. 
The slate is wiped clean. But more than that, we are credited with his righteousness. So it's not enough that just the ledger book of our sin was erased and wiped clean. Like we were zeroed out. The account was zeroed. All the sin, all the rebellion, all of that's just cleared. That's good and it's necessary. But we also need righteousness. Coming in with a zero account, zeroed account before God's not going to cut it. We need righteousness, but we don't have it. We need it. Christ has given us his. It's been credited to our account. We have full and complete righteousness of Jesus credited or reckoned to us. And so as a result on that day, as Paul says, we will be presented before God, holy, faultless, and blameless. Paul speaks of this elsewhere in his writings. That's what's coming. The reality is that's our position before God right now. That's how he sees us through Christ. But oh, how our daily practice falls short, doesn't it? For now, we struggle on in our spiritual growth. We're checked by sin and our shortcomings and our failures. But one day, our practice will finally match our position. And we have the promise of God that it will be so. We will be presented holy, meaning we're completely set apart from sin and set apart to God. God will view us as faultless. It's a great word. It means to be unblemished, free from stain or defect. And we'll be blameless. We'll appear before him on that day above reproach. In other words, there won't be anything in us that could be a charge against us. It won't happen. God will see to that. I really love what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. This is a passage worth knowing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Paul says this. It's a prayer, really, but it, underneath it is a strong promise. Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole soul, spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. God will see to it. He will surely do it. He's faithful and he will present us holy and faultless and blameless on that day. What a reassuring promise of God. He is at work in us to carry out the work in which he has begun. Now, I think this guarantee from God is especially important as we turn to verse 23 and consider the other side of the matter, and that is our responsibility. Our responsibility to continue on with Christ. Verse 23, let me back up into verse 22. Uh, He will present us holy, faultless, and blameless before him, Now verse 23, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul calls upon each of us to continue on in our faith, to persevere with Christ and to keep on believing. So yes, God will present us holy, faultless, and blameless before him. He's promised to do it. He's faithful. But Paul says we have some work to do. We have our role to play in our sanctification as long as we're still here. We must, according to Paul here, remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. We have that responsibility. Or to state it the other way, he says, we must not be shifted away from the hope of the gospel. So thus, we have responsibility 
And Paul lays it squarely on our shoulders to continue on in faithful obedience to Christ for as long as we have life and breath. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 24, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think it's a similar idea to what Paul's talking about here. Now, when he uses the word if in verse 23, if indeed you remain grounded, I I don't think he's expressing doubt about the eternal security of believers. I think rather he's urging them and us to keep on with Christ because that's the only way anyone will be saved is if they continue on in faith with Christ. Trusting in him all the way through to the finish line. Now that doesn't threaten our security of salvation. Not at all. Because the scriptures promise that the saints will persevere till the end. But God uses exhortations like this and also the warnings of Scripture. He uses them as one of the means of keeping us preserving. Preserving in the faith, pressing on with Jesus. So these exhortations and conditional statements and the warnings, God uses them as the means, one of the means to keep our salvation secure because we keep on believing, we keep on keeping on. It's like when you warn a child to not run out into the street. That warning is one of the means of protecting that child. Or when you tell the athlete, you're not going to make it to the competition unless you keep training. The training doesn't become a threat, does it? It becomes the means of getting to the, to the final. So in both cases, the warning and the exhortation are means of motivation, but also ensuring the outcome. New Testament writers did not shy away from urging us to keep on believing, to keep on holding fast to the faith. I think of the writer of Hebrews who says, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now there are many other verses like this, but it just demonstrates the same point that the New Testament writers are glad to do it, to say, keep on keeping on. This coming out of the domain of darkness and leaving this alienation and being reconciled to God. Keep on believing. Stand firm. Be rooted in the, in the gospel. Hold on to Christ. Be stable and steadfast. Don't shift your hope off of the gospel. We need exhortations like this. We do. It does raise the question of, well, especially if we're, like, we're seeing it, we're motivated. Yeah, I want to, this is the cry of my heart. I want to keep on with Jesus. Well, how do we do that? How do you remain rooted? How do you remain steadfast? How do you, how do you make sure you don't shift your hope off of Christ and onto other things and threaten your soul? Well, we could answer that in a good number of ways. Uh, we could go the route of, well, the, the spiritual disciplines, you need to read your Bible, you should be praying, you need to be around other believers, etc. And those are good things. But let me, let me just give you one thing that I think is the simplest, but also probably the most profound and helpful. Keep yourself purposely and vitally engaged in the life of the local church. You want to remain steadfast in the faith, grounded, not shifted away from the hope of the gospel, keep yourself purposely and vitally engaged in the life of your local church. No one's paying me to say that. We're not trying to boost the numbers here at the church. This is God's prescription. 
My mind goes to Ephesians 4. I, I should say, I think if you're doing that, everything else will follow. I think that's the point. And my mind goes to Ephesians 4 where God, Paul says God has given spiritual leaders to the church. Remember what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4 there. He's given leaders in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Paul says that as that happens and everyone is exercising their gift, as everyone is serving one another, Paul says the body of Christ will be built up, strengthened, and mature. And then he says, then we'll no longer be like little children, tossed by the waves, blown around by every wind of teaching, by every wind of doctrine, this way, that way, knocked off the foundation. Paul says, God's designed it that in the church, as the leaders equip the saints, and as everyone together is pursuing Christ and you're serving one another, the body will be built up, and you're part of that body, and you'll be strengthened. That's the stability, I think, the firmness, the grounding that he's talking about here in Colossians. That's the primary way I think we keep it. Now, out of that flows all the other things. But keep yourself engaged in the life of the church. Paul mentions there in the end, uh, or in the middle there, verse 23, the hope of the gospel that you heard. And this mentioning of the gospel causes him to elaborate a little bit at the end of verse 23. He's going to talk about his own ministry here, especially as chapter 1 continues. He focuses on his own ministry. But Paul says here that this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So he mentions the gospel, and it just, it's like it got his mind to himself and his own ministry. Paul's telling them that, look, the gospel I preached to you, the, the gospel that I just told you to keep your stand on, to keep holding firm to, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it wasn't some obscure, isolated, peculiar thing that I brought your way. It's truth for all peoples, everywhere, all nations, around the world. It's the truth, says Paul, that is being proclaimed under heaven and will continue to be proclaimed. And wouldn't you know it, it's reached its way to us in our culture, in our day in our place, in our lives. The gospel that spread under all creation right down to our day. Paul gave his life to serve Christ. He gave his life for the cause of the gospel. He's going to mention how hard it was, how much he labored and strove to do that well in verse 29. Galatians 4, he actually talks about gospel ministry as like giving birth. I don't have experience in that, but I think it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult, it's hard. That's what it was. It was difficult work, but it was infinitely worth it. And it seems like Paul never missed an opportunity to mention it, to mention the, the, the joy and the thankfulness and the wonder as he contemplated serving Christ. And I think the reason that it was a joy for Paul, and he's happy to say, I've become a servant of this gospel. He knew the powerful effect it had in his life and he saw the powerful effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ breaking into the lives of others. But Paul knew who he was. The very thing he tells them to do, to look backwards, Paul, Paul's done that elsewhere, 1 Timothy 1. He says, I was the chief of sinners. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. And Paul never forgot what he once was. But his emphasis and what he gloried in is, is what Jesus did in his life, what he pulled, what Christ pulled him out of and now made of his life. He knew what he was now in Christ. 
And that perspective made an impact for Paul, and I pray that it would do for us as well. Now, like the Colossians, I don't think we have to look far to remember what we once were in our unbelieving life. I mean, some, for some, that's easier than others. God maybe saved you at a later age. You had more to look back on. But wherever you find yourself, according to the truth of Scripture, we were lost, we were alienated, we were separated from the source of life. But thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. All that changed as the Spirit gave us new life, as God reconciled us to Him through the death of His Son. You know the glorious thing, we're not going to turn to it, this would be a whole other sermon, but you can footnote it, you can write it in your notes. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul highlights the glorious reality of our reconciliation that God gave His Son in order to reconcile the world to Himself. He says, he speaks of it this way, that we then have been given the ministry of what? The ministry of reconciliation. So the very thing that God's done in our life, we now have the privilege and the responsibility to consider that as a ministry to share that with others and to be engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. So take time today, maybe this week, you can compare those passages. Until that day when we are presented holy, faultless, and blameless before him, we are a work in progress, aren't we? Our lives are marked by fits and starts and stumbles, But God is going to finish the work he began in each of us. He will. He's promised it. And until then, each of us must take seriously Paul's charge here to remember, to glory in what we are now, but also to continue on. And may God help us to do that. May God help us lovingly to help one another do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word It is helpful to us, it's good for our souls, and it's part of what we need for our spiritual health and growth. God, I pray for each of us, and I pray for this church, that, God, we would remain faithful to Jesus. We know we have your promise that you will see to it. You will guard our faith through your power, through your spirit, but let us not shirk the responsibility to remain grounded firm, steadfast, rooted, and to not shift our hope away from the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, make that glorious truth of the gospel precious to us today. Make it afresh in our hearts, something we delight in. Increase our love for Jesus and help us as we walk, seek to walk faithfully with him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.